You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. So we're just going to breeze right into this and go into season two. The first thing I want to talk about is, again, going back to this idea of employing different tropes and and kind of trying to use several at the same time as well. It's basically this idea of we're just going to keep throwing stuff into the gumbo and eventually it'll taste good. At least it was for me initially. I don't know if you felt the same. Because again, first season, we've got alternate, this mirror universe. So it's them playing with alternate realities. And then the second season, they're playing with time travel and alternate realities still as well. Right. And I don't know if you felt that that worked or if they were just taking on too much at that point. Because at least as it pertains to Discovery... It's almost as if nothing's ever simple. Nothing can be yeah. just a reasonably complex war of the Klingons and the Federations. No, it has to be the entirety of humanity is at stake. It can't be, oh, we're going to do time travel and there's going to be some wonky time travel shenanigans where we land in a, in a future that's not what we want, so we got to go back and, and all of that. No, it has to be there's an evil AI that wants to destroy all organic life in the universe. So it's Mass Effect meets Star Trek. Yeah, it's the the stakes are so unbelievably high. And so when they they toss in these other tropes, I don't know that it was the best choice for them. And I think I would have liked to have seen them just stick with one. Just stick with the alternate universe, this mirror universe, for at least one more season. Where did you fall on that? So when it came to the mirror universe stuff, I felt like that played itself out um, pretty well. Like we, a whole season around the mirror universe um, is just, I think, too dark for the for the basic idea that is Star Trek, like the Roddenberry idea of optimism in the future, um, and the mirror universe. Like, I think. I, don't, I can't speak for the writers and I can't speak for the showrunners, but I kind of feel like we're already in the darkest timeline. <laughs> and so to see the dark, literally a darker timeline in what's supposed to be our socialist utopian paradise with spaceships and jetpacks would be a little much. It's also, there is um, something to be said about linking the past, the present and the future of Trek with a recasting of Spock and a recasting of Pike and bringing it all together that um, And so it didn't, it didn't bother me that much. That part didn't. However, I think your gumbo analogy is pretty apt because what I find, like there are too many things rolling around in this pot and sometimes they're pulling out stuff that's not, not ready yet. Um, some of the episodes I want to talk about really are, I find to be Trek at some of its, at some of its best there's still i just you know i just rewatched a whole bunch to be prepared pair for today um but i feel like um the disjointedness of this episode of this entire season um is a lot of highs a lot of lows and then a lot of middling episodes that are like oh, okay fine but not as not as good as season one but it's also not a sophomore slump either um you know, like in today's TV market, like we can't um, we can't ignore like what the reality of a show like uh, how expensive it could be to produce for regular TV, why it's on streaming, why it's allowed to spend so much money to bring in viewers for the streaming app. So 
all that has a factor in like, you know, maybe some additional things that are being thrown in to quote, keep the audience interested. Um, it feels like people don't understand that like, and when I say people, I mean network and streaming executives don't seem to get the idea that when you edit and you distill to what the show and the season should be about, you come out with a stronger product. Yep, exactly. But, but all that set aside, the gumbo analogy is perfect. There's some stuff that's coming out too soon. There's some stuff that's like, okay, we've already, I've had more than my fair share of okra in this gumbo. Let's move on. But um, I didn't, though the issue I had wasn't like a lack of a mirror universe or like moving other stuff around. It's more like the, the disjointedness. I'm really struggling to find like, what were the episodes that really like made it clear? Like, this is an episode that like we should have spent more time with or less time with someone. Um, but we'll get there. Yeah. Okay. Before we dive into the second season, we are going to touch on another of the short tracks. And that were, that was the four episodes that came out, the, the short episodes that came out between seasons one and two, because you wanted to talk about the brightest star, which is a story of Saru, which is again, a, 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 phenomenal character that is very unique as well his ability to be able to well not to be able to he's always on edge always worried about things at least for a while um made him such an interesting character to have on the screen but also as uh the analog for us the viewers because the moment the moment things are going bad and they cut to him and he's touching those tendrils on his neck, you're going, oh, shit's about to go down, <laughs> you know, right. and you you have that that connection then through him to everything else that's going there. And I mean, Doug Jones is such a brilliant actor. Like it's 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 so important to watch him in other roles before you see this. Because he's not just the tall, lanky character that they put into all the monster costumes for a variety of shows. I mean, his his list of shows on IMDb is ridiculously long. But it's also about just how good an actor he is and what he can bring to a role. The, everything from his body language, the way he moves, the positions of his arms, even how he walks, his mannerisms, everything. Like, he's... Doug Jones is brilliant in this. So go ahead and tell us about The Brightest Star. So The Brightest Star, um, so here's what we know about Saru. Uh, he comes from a race uh, called the Kelpians uh, that in Star Trek's prime universe uh, is a technically a pre-warp species. So how does a pre-warp member of a pre-warp species join an organization well-known for its prime directive, which is like we don't, we don't interfere with the development of other species. Uh, just as an aside, in the mirror universe, they eat Kelpians, which is gross because that's cannibalism because Saru is hella smart and sentience and cannibalism just should not mix. But I digress. All right. So in Brightest Star, we see how Saru meets Captain Giorgio. Um, the uh, people, the Kelpians believe in this great balance. And that there comes a time in, actually, that's actually, part of this comes from the episode. But Saru, they believe in the great balance, but Saru wants to do more than just believe in the great balance. Because life is very short for, not super short for a Kelpian, but um, people get this illness or they get too old and then they are harvested by another race of aliens that hold them to the balance. Um, I feel like the Kelpians know that they're not gods, but they're more powerful. And so because they are indoctrinated to believe that they are a prey species, that this is just their lot in life. And Saru rebels against his lot in life um, and builds basically um, a communication device from some downed, um, uh, the, the, uh, the predator species technology and starts having a conversation with Giorgio, similar to uh, an episode of The Next Generation wherein Data has a uh, pen pal relationship with a little girl from a just just beginning to explode. They're not pre-warp, 
but they're not super warp advanced and the Federation doesn't really know of them yet. I'd um, forgotten about that episode, yeah. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I love it, because that's such yeah. a great episode. Um, but here we have Saru, like, trying to get his people to move beyond just the great balance, the great, uh, it's not the great loop, but that's something else. Beyond the great balance. Um, and the predator species does not want Saru to leave, uh, does not want Saru to have this technology, doesn't want to talk about what's going on. Um, but Giorgio, uh, in this episode, um, at the climax of the episode, arrives in the shuttle and says, like, so you make an interesting case. Like, we can't really help your brothers and sisters, but you know of us, and we've had this conversation, and you built this, You and this is traveling fast. This is a subspace communicator traveling faster than light. You makes you a member of the warp species, so you can come on board. Giorgio accepts him, brings him on board, and uh, that's how Saru joins Starfleet. Um, He's put into the program. He becomes a commander. We don't know how long it's been, but it's clearly been a while. Um, but we, what's interesting about Brightest Star is this is the look at the two species in the Kelpian homeworld. Some of the Kelpian culture, how they are very agrarian, um, uh, spiritual people. And here's Saru the scientist. Um, Saru, the scientist who is so wanting to please his superiors that he learned 93 federation languages like this is a super brilliant guy um and his people are super brilliant and they're treated like prey like what's up with that and we come to find out in later in season two why they're treated as a prey species and what happened um due to um a, a, due to a, some sort of other sentient MacGuffin technology that was like the doomsday creature from the original series, but not exactly the doomsday creature um, that had all sorts of historical data on Kelpians and other species as well. Cause it's just been exploring the galaxy and doing readings. And it turns out that turns out the Kelpians um, once they reach a particular point in their age, um, they, they say evolve, but I think they just continue to develop um, and they go from prey to predator species. And so those ganglia that are used in season one to identify threats, that is always the cue that some shit's going to go down, turn into these like venomous spine shooters that Saru didn't know he had because the uh, predator species has been lying to the Kelpians because the Kelpians nearly wiped them all out um, in the distant history of the Kelpian race. Once again, this is just like the other characters where it's the character is not two dimensional. There is so much backstory to Saru, and that makes it so much more interesting when you're seeing the episodes that he is featured in, especially when you understand how tortured he is because he can't have any communications with his homeworld with his sibling, his sister and, and all of the people that he knew that he knows are in danger because of what this other, the predatory race is doing to them. And he feels so like his hands are tied and he can't do anything. So when he loses his ganglia, excuse me. And now all of a sudden he's not held back by fear you see that change in his character and you yeah. see him becoming more aggressive when he talks to people. Some of the interactions between him and Pike are brilliant. And so he goes through this transformation that's exceptionally interesting. I, I absolutely adored it. And it's, again, it, it really helps this, this in-between episode really helps cement that and explain why he's so tortured and why he's so angry as well. Like when he loses them, that anger makes sense because his people are being killed and the Federation that he has um, aligned himself with, that he has tried to do so much for won't help him save his people either. Just brilliant stuff. Yeah. It's what, what I really dig about with Saru is that, he continues to evolve as a character and develop as a character. And in Brightest Star, we see the roots of that. And it directly ties into season two and the continued growth of this character, who becomes 
way more aggressive, not just assertive, but aggressive. Um, and it's really interesting to watch because, again, the character is played by Doug Jones, who rarely is out of any sort of costume, right? Like, he was Abe Sapien in the original Hellboy trilogy, uh, excuse me, movies. He has been, um, he was the, he won his Oscar as the fish in um, The Shape of Water. Uh, he's always in some sort of a costume. He's also just this gigantic thin man. So, yeah, but he's just super good. Yeah. Okay, so let's move into season two now. Which, like we said, they were putting the breadcrumbs for the Red Angel very early on and set it up that this all had to do with Spock. And we did get this, again, new Spock here, played by, what's his name again, Ethan Peck. What did you think of him as Spock? I thought he was a interesting choice for Spock. Like, when we... and. It, because the the nature of this incarnation of Spock is unlike other incarnations in that uh, this is a Spock that is self ch- checked himself into a Starfleet psychiatric hospital because he's been having nightmares and has been um, unable to get out of his own head. Uh, they even have a name for the disorder that he basically develops because of the Red Angel and those things. Um, but it's totally... Oh, yeah, it's it's basically Vulcan dyslexia. He can't... Oh, yeah, right. He's swapping stuff around, right? Which is is a result of being half human, half Vulcan. Based. Um, anyway, I thought this uh, Peck's version of Spock, especially towards... This is the thing about with Ethan's version of of Spock. Um, he was really angry. Um, and I'm not used to seeing that. But it wasn't character necessarily character breaking, but it did give me pause. Like, what is going on with this version of Spock? Why does he hate Burnham so much? Or why is he so mad at her? Um and I, I watched these episodes maybe about a month ago, um, and it's still, like, they explained why, and it just seemed like for people to, for a person to be so logical and to be such a, um, I mean, he's the first Vulcan that we ever see in the history of Star Trek. He's the most logical person that we have been encountered. He's often, you know, he's the data of the original series, but for him to like carry this grudge, cause it's not logical. And this is something that like, that was the thing that bothered me. Once they processed through that, I thought he was a great Spock. Um, especially in the last episode of the second season, I thought he did a phenomenal job, but the whole like, grudge holding Vulcan did not click for me in the beginning. I did not have as much of a problem with it because we have seen him be emotional in other series at different points because of that human side kind of thing. And it is something that, that by and large as an audience, we like seeing that those moments where there's humanity in, in Spock are the fun ones to see where he breaks character, you know, where you see that slight smile or you see some anger or whatever though. When they, when he breaks character is when it's fun. And the reason why I was a, a little bit more all right with it. I, I, I do still think that they really stretched it yeah. and they really tried to hold off on revealing all of the reasons why for quite a while And in so doing, I think it was kind of a disservice to themselves. But it made sense because he was a child at the time that this happened. And having raised four kids now, you you appreciate how something that they experience when they are children, as they become adults, in their minds is still huge because that's how they experienced it. And you kind of go, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. It was nothing. But because it was so large in their minds when they were young, that's how it remains. And so that's how I looked at it 
because I knew you could figure out this is because he feels betrayed by her because she pushes him away kind of thing and things like that. So it's one of those, I can see how to a child that would be crushing and, and a, a, um, how would I word that? Not a deception, but to have somebody that you care for do that to you would be something that he would carry with him for a long time. And because he always looks back at it with that lens of that childhood lens, it was never something he was able to process as an adult until much later on. So I didn't have as much of a problem with that. No, it it wasn't like completely like, oh, I can't watch the show. But I, I clearly loved it, but I did was like, there's something about this grudge bit that is really holding me back. And, and, but and I, I, know, I know exactly what you mean. And I do agree that it could have absolutely been done better. I did like Liam Hughes, the kid who played the young Spock. He was yeah, phenomenal. He was oh my God, I love that kid. He did a fantastic job on that role. So we get to see Spock. We get to see that he's got his own issues going on. Which, once again, we're in yet another situation where it's not bad enough that all this other shit is going on. Now you got to deal with a Spock that's got who the fuck knows what's wrong with him and you got to try right. to fix him kind of thing. So it's yet more, again, spices, shit thrown into the gumbo at this point here. And then there's the Red Angels stuff that starts very early on. And it's basically this this character, you later find out that it's actually Burnham. That is well, sorry, you think it's Burnham and you find out now it's actually her her mother, who's still alive, that is sending her and the crew, the Enterprise, to various points, various places to get them ready for the end, which is how they take out. Leland, who is the leader, who is leading the area, what is it called? Area 51? Not Area 51, but Section Section 31. 31 for the super spy arm of the Federation. And eventually he is infected by control, which is this AI that they encounter at some point, discovery and load into their. Again, a lot of confusing shit thrown in here that they try to make sense of as the series progresses. And I think that's where they lost some people because it, I felt it take, it took longer to make sense of all of this in season two than it took for season one to make sense of what they were doing with the mirror universe. Yeah. It, it's like time travel gets super complicated because um, most of us, you know, will think of time the way we process it, which is in a linear fashion. Like this whole time is a flat circle bullshit kind of stuff is, is, is kind of mind boggling. Um, and so they keep jumping backwards and forwards and, and like, and not like in entire episodes, but like in chunks of episodes, for instance, we have um, Pike and uh, our good friend, Ash Tyler, who now works for section 31 jump forward in time through a wormhole, but they're not really through time, and we don't want to spend a whole lot of time there. But a probe they send out comes back and tries to kill them. It's like, which is setting, which is clearly setting up that the future is full of AI that wants to kill people, and they're yeah. exploring the nature of, of society and AI and, and blah blah. But the problem is there isn't really a data or even um, a good Vulcan to push back on the nature of like what AI can do for people. Um, and also, we should probably have a quick conversation about Section 31 because it has been used throughout Trek um, since its inception in Deep Space Nine. Can, um, can we just say they have the best communicators? Oh, they have the Yeah. Those, They're, the black ones? That looks awesome. I love those. That was cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would have. And one they've of got those. cloaking technology for their ships, too. Like, what the fuck? Section yeah. 31? Yeah. So, what we, like, what we see with Section 31 is that it's. It's like the CIA for the Federation. Yep. Um, and that makes a lot of sense for Deep Space Nine in that Deep Space Nine was the edge of utopia. Deep Space Nine was the edge of the Federation and the idea of like, how do you share your ideas without becoming a total colonizer? Even though 
that was not the language used in Deep Space Nine. It's the the prime directive is an anti-colonialist, I think, explanation. We can delve into the philosophy behind it all later. Regardless, Section 31, we have one person in Deep Space Nine who represents Section 31. And by the end of the arc of Section 31, you're not sure if it's real, if it's fake, if it's some guy's delusion, if it's a cover-up, whatever. The other people behind Trek and who have taken over since Ron Moore was running it have like, nope, Section 31 is the CIA and they're typically always bad. Which, hey, you know what? I got no problem with because Section 31 is a bunch of bad guys. And I do how like how our heroes do triumph over Section 31 at well, the same time. I'm a little burned on Section 31. It's a gumbo, it's part of the gumbo that is season two that I'm like. Did we really need all, like, is there a different preparation method for it that would have made it better? It just, it, it didn't, like, pull, it clearly didn't pull me out of everything, but, like, you know, having Section 31 going all the way back to 10 years before the original series launches, like, really changes a lot of what we think of when it comes to the original series and okay, resetting but, the story. But how much is that of of that bothering you is because it is resetting what has already been established um, as opposed to you just not thinking it fits in this context here. Because going back to what I was saying earlier, we have to be willing to accept that not everything's going to fit into the canon perfectly and that changes will have to be made as a story of this scope has to be told. So which is it that's bothering you? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm, I don't know. Okay. Like, I'm thinking about it. Like, is it because it doesn't fit well? Is it because it, I didn't like it? Is it because it changes stuff? I think more that it changes stuff, which, you know what? It's a prequel show. Gonna change some stuff. So I should get over it. Yeah. For me, it, yeah, it was yet another thing thrown in. However, for me, it made sense because it established it as part of, the Federation as it stands in, in this series. Um, and so it, it wasn't like they were taking from uh, a mirror universe or time travel or whatever. No, no, this is here. You don't hear about it a lot because it's spy shit and you're not supposed to hear about it a lot. And it's the arm of the Federation that they're not proud of. So it makes sense that you wouldn't hear about it a lot. And the fact that we are in a society now that is more accepting of that and understands that that, in some circumstances may be a necessary evil, you know, different things like that. Inserting it into the stories now, into the canon now, for me made sense. And it made sense because you needed a place for Giorgio. You needed a place for Ash. And you needed a reason why... Um, well, you didn't need it, but it, it helped with that integration of the AI. And of course it would go to... This, the part of the Federation that is the strongest, that has the coolest toys and that can operate under the radar and go there. So so it kind of made sense for me. I was willing to accept it. Yeah, and you make a good point that it is, Section 31 is a good place for Tyler and it is a good place for Giorgio. So, and also, like, for all the shit I just said about talking about Section 31 and Trek, we're going to get a Section 31 show starring Giorgio. Yeah. So I ain't mad about that. So I exactly. should clearly get myself right with, with Trek Jesus. So, yeah, I, I, when they announced her series, I was thinking that's perfect. Um, I have not read about it yet to see if it is going to be with the original Giorgio or the Mirror Universe one. I don't know which it's going to be. Um, either case, I'm good with it but I would actually prefer the mirror universe one because I would like to see what she does in that section 31 because, because clearly the character is having fun with it. Clearly Michelle Yeoh is having fun with it because when you see yeah. her in some of the scenes, she's having fun. She has to be. So I, I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing where they take that, that series. I'm 99% sure it's going to be mirror universe, Giorgio. Which, that's, like, that's wonderful and wild. And, like, is it going to explore a different part of the future history? So, I, yeah. I, I do dig it. 
Okay, so let's jump into some of the episodes you wanted to talk about. Let's go with uh, New Eden first. So New Eden is the second episode of the season, and it is the first of the pulses that they can explore with the Red Angel. Basically, the Red Angel shows up uh, in seven distinct places in the galaxy, and the Starfleet and everybody can detect it. And so Starfleet's like, well, let's go find out what it is. And so they go, and it turns out that this particular flash is in the beta quadrant that at maximum warp for that era will take way too long to get there. So they use a spore drive, pop in, go to New Eden, pick up a distress call, um, and then zoom in on the planet to see pre-warp civilization humans um, and a big old church. And, and, you know, the future of Star Trek doesn't, you know... Whereas Babylon 5 had a whole ending series and a whole series of ending scenes where we are introduced to the ver the variety of faiths on Earth, um, Star Trek hasn't really dealt a lot with human religion. It seems like we have moved past that in the Star Trek universe, except uh, Pike's father is a teacher of comparative religion. So we're not entirely out of the religious phase, but we don't really know. It's not been explored until this, really, I think, this episode. I could be wrong. Uh, People who are more diehard Trekkies will probably write Roger all sorts of mean emails and tweets about how I got everything wrong. Um, so you're welcome, Roger. But what happens with uh, New Eden is uh, there's a landing team with uh, one of our um, bit characters who's a holdover from season one. Uh, she's the Black Helms woman, and she's comes from a Luddite colony. So people in Trek that have rejected technology, which is a thing that is well-established in the Trek universe. She, Burnham, and uh, Pike land on the planet, go into the church, um, figure out that, like, the, basically that the Red Angel saved a whole bunch of people and the church just as the bomb started dropping in 2053, which is the this incarnation of Trek's beginning of... Uh, excuse me, World War III, which in this incarnation of Trek was 2053, 200 years prior. Um, so how did people, how did the Red Angel pull this off? They're trying to in figure this out when one of the people from this community finds them. Uh, Pike is introduced to the whole culture. And then the question arises, like, what are they going to do with this colony of people? Do they tell them the truth? Do they follow General Order 1, which is the prime directive? Um, and Pike is pretty clear. They don't need to be rescued. They have a perfectly functioning pre-warp society that the Red Angel brought here. These people would have died in the in World War III, but they were saved for some sort of reason, which we find out later, um, much, much later in this particular season. Uh, Pike um, is Pike and everyone is bushwhacked by a grenade. Um, basically a stun grenade, which is 200 years old. I didn't know a stun grenade could last that long, but, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, while our heroes are asleep, the uh, villagers have gone through their stuff and um, pointed, and like, are, the guy who captured them is like, look, they're from real Earth. What's going on here? My ancestors were right. We should talk to them about going home what bothers me not in a storytelling sense but in like a as a and not even as a fan sense but as um in the sense of like ooh, that's an interesting turn and i don't like it but it's an interesting turn is that the the village head woman basically calls our the guy who bushwhacked our heroes is thinking in the quote corrupt old ways of earth and New Eden is going to feature in some way, shape, or form in season three because that's where they were going to. The Red Angel was like saying, this is where you should go um, to escape the AI. Um, this is possibly going to come back. So the corrupt ways of old Earth, um, as in science is corrupt, not that, you know, uh, anything else is corrupt, but just that science is a corrupt uh, aspect of human culture. Um, 
at the end, at the end, though, uh, Burnham fixes some of the technology before they beam out, um, and New Eden does not know that Earth is still around. Um, but Burnham does give the scientist a reason to continue to hope. The scientist and his descendants. Um, I'm trying to remember what the B plot. Oh, the B plot. Now I remember. Um, is on the discovery, the ring around New Eden, the planetary ring, is deteriorating and will cause a extinction-level event because it's falling apart. Um, and so they have to use this gigantic uh, black, dark matter um, asteroid that is uh, has a gigantic, is, is incredibly massive and condensed. So they use that to basically... Uh, pull the entirety of the ring away from the planet in what uh, Ensign Tilly calls a donut. You're doing a giant donut in space, uh, which does sound like a lot of fun. So that's the B plot as our, as Captain, acting Captain Saru or First Officer Saru leads a mission to save the entire planet from an extinction level event. What was the. Um the person who is on the ground who knows what's going on that they interface with i'm trying to remember who that was was that the guy who was the uh, the vulcan in voyager i want to say so uh, what the hell was his name no i don't think it's tuvok tuvok I that's, not... i'm uh, <laughs> literally trying to find who the actor was because i remember thinking oh it's nice that they brought him for that yeah, I I see I know I've seen this actor in other things, but I couldn't tell you. Damn it. What was we, what was his name in the episode? Do you remember? I'm looking it up now. Um we don't find out his name uh until later. His name is Jacob. We don't find out that his name is Jacob until like later and they're talking after the prayer about how the soldiers, civilians and scientists were pulled into New Eden. They call Terralysium. Okay, I've got him. Played by Andrew Moody. Yeah, he's he's basically he's an actor who's been in a lot of things. Andrew Moody. He's been in a ton of things. It's just uh that is him, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's you recognize him when you see him, but uh but he was phenomenal in that role. That that episode was uh edit or uh directed by Jonathan Frakes as well, which uh he'd done a few of them. He he's directed a lot of Trek stuff, obviously. Yeah, big fan of it, Jonathan Franks. It's one of the things I was, I also, like, when I was picking some of the episodes, I did pick a lot of Jonathan Franks directed episodes. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on now to If Memory Serves. So If Memory Serves, um, we have gotten Spock, and we are looking to go and still solve the problem with the Red Angel and what is the purpose of the Red Angel? Like our, our cast of characters is starting to put together that the Red Angel is a person and that the Red Angel is leading them and guiding them, but they still don't understand what for. But what we do see is if in memory serves um, that Spock needs to go to a planet that both Pike and Spock had been before, which is Talus 4, which is the home to the uh, telepathic mutants uh, who are humanoid, but um, are gigantic, bulbous-headed things, um, who uh, viewers of the original series will recognize from uh, the episode The Menagerie Part 1 and Part 2 is where we get Christopher Pike after this has happened. Um, but Christopher Pike... Uh, so. Uh, Burnham has rescued Spock and is bringing him to the planet of uh, to, uh, uh, Talos IV so that the, the gigantic brained aliens can help Spock sort through his trauma and what's going on with the, with the angel and with his basically Vulcan dyslexia. Uh, in the meantime, the Discovery is looking for, uh, looking for Spock and for Burnham because... Uh, Turns out that uh, Spock is accused of the murder of Starfleet personnel while he was in the psychiatric hospital um, because, as we found out later, that an, the AI is looking to stop the Red Angel because the Red Angel's popping in and out of time. They had some interesting stuff with with Spock 
in that episode clearly because there's a lot going on here and it is a deception you know it's a deception you've you've gotten introduced to section 31 so at this point you are also already distrustful of them like Leland from the get-go is not somebody that you trust let alone once he's infected with the AI and so when you are seeing the stuff going on with uh, with Spock because he is going through this whatever the hell it is that he's going through kind of thing and he's not in his right mindset when you're seeing section 31 trying to take advantage of that kind of thing it it puts spock in a an interesting space for you as the viewer that you don't normally see him in kind of thing where he's he's not as he's not as strong a character he's more passive but by design. And so as you see him rise above that or trying to figure out and struggling against him and you're seeing uh, at various points Burnham trying to help him and him lashing out at her for different things and then his relationship with Pike as well. Yeah. There are so many things going on that that made Spock, who otherwise can be a fairly flat character, insanely interesting to watch on screen and that's where i thought uh, ethan really did a good job as well in portraying the the spock that is not in his right mindset and confused and and almost like somebody going through a, a bad depression or something else and and yet still struggling to maintain hold of of logic for him and things like that yeah, like when um, the episode opens and uh, Burnham, they drop out of warp into basically what appears to be a black hole and Spock just so fast, it's even hard to see when it's being filmed, like just keeps, like uh, takes control of the ship and just keeps moving forward because it's just a psychic projection that is somehow tricking the ship. That is, so this is the part that kind of, it doesn't pull me out of it, but if I think about it too long, it becomes a little bit of a yeah, hole. Yeah, don't do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I didn't know psychics could com- fool computers and, and cameras. And so they're calling it on uh, memory alpha, they're calling it psychokinetic to suggest that there's some sort of a particle, whatever. But yeah, we see uh, um, also the B-plot, the back on the Discovery we see that there's a struggle between Section 31, who has ordered the Discovery to report where Spock is, and how Pike's saying, I'm not doing that, uh, to Tyler's face, as Tyler is now working for Section 31. But also, our good doctor friend um, has to deal with the fact that Tyler is on the ship. Tyler killed him. Coolbore remembers being murdered by Tyler, which has got to be an awful thing to have on your conscience. Um and uh, they do have some confrontations about, like, because they both are struggling to figure out who they are and their place in this time and in this yeah. universe, which is a really great thing to have them pair off like that because they're both fantastic at their job. Um, it's as, funny as, because as I, as I was watching this season, it was kind of like the second season of Stranger Things where they kind of they, they took characters but paired them with someone different. And all of a sudden, yeah. you're like, oh, I want to see more of Eleven and Hopper. I want to see more of, you know, these other characters together. And here we got to see the Doctor and Ash, where in the first season it was primarily the Doctor and Stamets. Now we're getting the Doctor and Ash and what their relationship is now. And it's confusing and it's horrible and it's something that they both have to contend with in very different ways it was very very interesting i liked how they did that yeah i there's a lot to like about this episode because again it ties into the past of trek very neatly especially for the second season um how it's they're back on talos four and they're you know because in the menagerie episodes we see christopher pike's character in his wheelchair, but also revisiting the Menagerie planet. Um, in fact, some of the promotional material for this episode uh, had video clips from the original series episode to the Menagerie, where Pike and Spock are on the, they're playing with the, 
the blue singing flowers that unfold and we have a much better version of the blue singing flower that unfolds um the 1968 version is uh, a little BBC-level production quality. Interesting, you were going to Whereas say. this is like a really cool uh, CGI, really well-done CGI flower that opens up and sings. Is this the episode oh, where Pike sees what's going to happen to him? No, that comes later. Okay. Where he sees, and that, what's great about that episode is like, he sees his future, is offered the opportunity to not do it, and still says, nope. That's my job as a Starfleet captain. I got to do it. And that's um, where we it's also a very got Guard of the Gethsemane moment. Yeah. And it's also the episode where we got to see Ashes and Laurel's child. And because right. he has grown up a lot faster and is an adult male now that, that Pike deals with to, to contend with the <sighs> MacGuffin time stones, which another aspect of, yeah. you know. You see this kind of thing in Trek often where they need a reason for something, and the easiest reason is sometimes a power gem. Hell, we saw it in freaking Infinity Stones for Marvel. They like to do this kind of stuff. But those scenes with Pike were spectacular because they got to show the strength of the character, that he understands his body's practically going to melt and yet he still has to yeah. continue with this timeline because this is what's going to save everybody. It was expected, but it still made you feel good as you're watching it because it was so well done. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is, um, oh goodness. I don't remember the episode number, but I feel like this is still early in the season, but it feels like this is a turning point where uh, to play that gumbo analogy from the last episode to death, uh, it's finally coming all together um, because there is, there are red angel bits here. We get to the reason why um, as part of their quote payment, the big headed aliens on Talos four require Burnham to give them the memory of why she and Spock just don't get along. It has to do with Burnham running away and nearly dying. And it turns out that the red angel came to Spock and said where she was going to be so that she could be rescued um, in the wild uh, national park area just outside of whatever Vulcan city they lived in, which I don't, I, we've been to Vulcan a handful of times and it's like a dusty red planet. Um, reminds me more of like the theater Red Rocks event than more than anything else. We've never seen any sort of like animal from Vulcan that thing was terrifying. <laughs> like this gigantic, like insectoid predator. Like how, how the Vulcans discovered uh, warp technology and didn't like nuke their planet just to get rid of those gigantic things. I, I don't know. Like, I guess logic saved them there, but those things were, that was a terrifying scene as little Michael runs away from that bug eyed heap. So let's talk about that Red Angel. For several episodes, you're led to believe that it is Michael from the future. Yes. And then the big reveal, no, it's her mom. Okay, so here's what I want to know. We're going to kind of split it apart in, in, in two ways. Um, one is, from a story standpoint, do we like this, that they did this bait and switch? And from a logical standpoint... Does it make sense that she would have been saved at the last minute like they set it up? Because the entirety of their 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 setup um, was that she wouldn't be allowed to sacrifice herself because then she couldn't exist in the future. This paradox that has been used time memorial in a variety of different shows. So they did that. However, once you find out that it's her mother who's in the suit, then that means that she wouldn't necessarily, well, she wouldn't have had to save her in order to continue. And it didn't necessarily always make sense that she, that she would, at least to me. So from a story standpoint, what did you think? Did you think that it was good that they did that bait and switch or would you have preferred that they kept Michael as the red angel? You know, I didn't like the idea of 
Michael as the Red Angel. I mean, I get it. It's a classic thing to do within a time travel storyline. Like, you witness yourself being there. Um, before I get into more of that, I like I do like the idea that Spock is able to have the conversations and, and work with the Red Angel because of his half-human, half-Vulcan nature. Um, and his dyslexia uh, gives him the ability to work through the time stuff without much difficulty. Um, that was kind of interesting. But, like, no... You know, you know, I had to watch the, some of these episodes more than once because uh, the way I initially watched them, I was hanging out with a bunch of my buddies and they kept talking throughout <laughs> the show. I'm like, I'm trying to watch TV here with you motherfuckers. Keep your mouth shut. And, they, um, and you know, it still doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, we know that they defeat control and they move 950 years into the future. That's about it. I don't understand, like, like why she's always slingshotting back and forth. The fact that Michael's mom survives, like, if it wasn't the actress who it is, Sonia Son, who is was also from The Wire and in Body of Proof and Burn Notice, um, of of all of those shows, I've only really watched one, which is The Wire. Um, she's phenomenal in The Wire, but. If it wasn't for the way that she made it happen, I don't think I would have cared for this at all. What really makes it stick for me is that as a as an actress and as the character, she's able to pull some really complicated, disparate um, moments and trek them into something that is coherent and cohesive. So... Like, as MacGuffins go in the Trek universe, not a fan of this one particularly. Like, the more I think about it, the more, like, totally confused I am. Like, it seems like, like, the, the final episode where Burnham finally realizes where she needs to go to make the things happen and the battle with control. Like, there was so much going on and oh, God, so many yeah. threads that they were trying to tie up. It was like, like the only way to escape what they left undone and how they did everything was literally to jump nearly a millennia into the future. Be like, well, it doesn't matter because they're so far in the future. No one is alive to remember the mess that we made anyway. So story-wise, it was like, in terms of enjoyment, I loved it. It was like, yeah, time travel. And it makes sense. Like this time travel makes less sense than uh, end game time travel. Um, which is a whole other topic for people to argue over. But what saved it from being like, oh, this is awful, for me, was just the quality of the actors, the the sets, um, the interplay between all of them. Like, Because at this point, I'm super huge into uh, Ethan's portrayal of Spock. Uh, Pike is like spot on and one of... Well, joy to watch on screen and Berman Berman is such a wonderful character that like I, I'm fine with it but the but the but that doesn't stand up to a real critical lens you know oh no absolutely not no and I I, I agree with everything you just said like by this point Philippa is so much fun to watch on screen like I mean she's having moments yeah. with Leland that are a joy to watch the two of them going against each other because neither of them is a good guy, you know? And, yeah. and, and so, and you're rooting for Philippa in this case. It's, it, it's a lot of fun to watch. Like you two, Spock is engaging by this point. He and Burnham have, have developed this much stronger relationship at this point, having gotten past everything that happened in the past and things like that. So, you've got this culmination that is emotionally charged because of the potential impact at the end. And the entirety of the crew understands this. So when you have those, those moments where the crew is willing to sacrifice themselves to go with her, it is a moment where, you know, the hairs go up on your arm. 
because it's it's been that culmination of this fantastic journey. However, it, it, it simply doesn't hold up to scrutiny at all. At all, at all, at all, in my opinion. And so when you are thinking about it and analyzing it and trying to kind of make sense of it all, it's not as much fun to do so as it is with season one and with the Mirrorverse and to, and all of those different things. Because here it's like, ah, you know, had you only done this, then all of these other things would make sense. Had you only kind of, you know, it's a... Yeah. it's It's... It's it's absolutely in the writing, but it's almost as if the writing was done piecemeal and then put together by someone who didn't understand what the final puzzle was supposed to look like necessarily and added a few pieces to try to make it make sense and it and it simply doesn't. And I I was not a fan of them using the mother. And that is odd for me. Because normally, because I am a parent and I love my kids and I love seeing films or TV shows where there is a, a strong relationship between the parent and the child, uh, especially later on in life. And this idea of suddenly seeing them again after years apart can be very, very interesting and fun. However, it can also be forced. And if it feels forced, and if it feels like there's a cheat, then you can't invest yourself in it quite as much. And for me, if you laid out the groundwork that her parents were killed by Klingons, here's what happened. And then two seasons, or at the end of a season and a half later kind of thing, you're suddenly going, ah, but she escaped at the last minute. Fuck you. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, no. You said she was killed. And... There were no breadcrumbs to lead us to believe that she had not been. So I I don't like that. I, I really, really don't like that. It's a cheat, and I, I, I abhor it. So it taints that relationship. And, yes, yeah, she was amazing in terms of her acting, and the scenes between her and Burnham were really well done. And I like that that she didn't take the traditional role of mother either and that she was tough and she was like don't you come for me and 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 trying yeah. to set herself apart from her as hard as that still was like there were a lot of really really cool elements to that relationship but it was forced and because of that it tainted it for me so i personally would have much preferred it to still be burnham which also would have made sense that she would come back when she tries to sacrifice herself in in that episode. You know what I mean? So, it again from my standpoint, I feel it would have worked a lot stronger had it been Michael in that in that suit. You know, the more I think about it, like the whole conceit of it. It just feels like, well, how do we tie everything back together? Yeah. Um, and it feels it feels unpolished in that the project that they were working on was a Section 31 project, and this is all part of Control's plan that she is somehow, like, interrupting or doing. It's just really, 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 really confusing. And I feel like the Section 31 aspect of all of this is kind of shoehorned in. It, and what saves it is the quality of the acting and just like how the the, yeah. the, peop, the actors are like, no, this is just what we do. And they make it work. But it reminds me of like uh, a studio executive saying to, I don't know, some say some sort of a movie franchise, like, no, we need we need these all these things in there to make it work. Um, Get the giant spider in Wild Wild West. <laughs> exactly. Or uh, Venom and Hobgoblin and and Sandman in a Spider-Man movie. Like, none, just, you get two, you don't get three. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. So that is, that's it for season two. We are now left to wonder what is going to be happening in season three, because basically where they left off, it, it, the potential to have a spectacular season set in the future without having to worry about how it ties into the 
canonical quote-unquote present of that time, which again would still be right before the original series, has basically removed the, 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 the shackles that were holding them back. They, they can run with it. And because they've established these characters now over the course of two seasons to the point where we adore them, they can really have a lot of fun with that third season. So ever so briefly now, because we haven't touched on everything by a long shot, I did want to quickly go over just a couple of of the characters and things that were really impactful over t- two seasons that we really liked. And like, we didn't really talk about Tilly. I was literally just thinking. Yeah. Mary Wiseman plays. Not enough Tilly. Yeah. Tilly, who is amazing. Here you have this character who is got some, some social awkwardness, super smart, funny as hell. And she's just absolutely fantastic. Every scene that she was in, Adored, and when you get to see her in the the scenes where she is pretending to be a mirror verse version of herself, were priceless. She yeah. was so bloody good in this role. So uh, I watched Trek, uh, the first season of Discovery, with my regular gaming group, and uh, so we would we would watch it, and we were doing our own Star Trek game at the time and uh my buddy's wife would be in there and would talk about captain tilly and how what eventually like always hinting at what happens and uh man i absolutely adore mary weissman's tilly she is hilarious and funny and sincere there's just so much to go on and on about tilly but yeah mirror universe tilly is such a gigantic departure from what we see. <laughs> but Tilly really gets into being Mirror Universe Tilly, which is also pretty great. Oh, it was... Oh, the moment she puts on the uniform, the black and gold uniform, <laughs> and you're like, yep. oh, shit's going to get real. This is going to be good. I, <laughs> and she delivers on it. She's just a spectacular actress. I we She was our favorite, probably, of all the characters in the show because... Every scene that she was in that she had a lot, well, whether she had a line or not, you're watching her. Like when she's on the bridge and she's throwing out these lines every once in a while and even Pike's looking at her like, what the hell? What are you going off on? She was great. And one of the other ones that I liked was Tig uh, Nataro. Right. God, I, I, I said that there were only two gay people in the show. There wasn't. She's gay as well. And she, her relationships with, with Stamets, the character, was phenomenal because, like, she came across very much as herself. I don't know if you've ever watched her stand-up, but oh, yeah. she oh, comes off I'm- as that. And I adored it. She, she was fantastic in this. Yeah, uh, Nicaro, I didn't know was a huge Trekkie, but Everything I've seen her in, including episodes of One Mississippi, which I did watch, um, which is her short-lived show, um, that's who she is. Like, one could say that this is an attempt to shoehorn that, uh, you know, a character into the universe or, like, compares her to uh, Badger's character on Battlestar Galactica. Like, I don't even remember that character's name. No, we don't care. Tignataro is great. (laughs) Her roles were perfect. Her like her scenes with Dr. Culper were phenomenal. I, I just totally loved um, Tig. Uh, and also like the whole, yeah, I saved their lives. I'm an engineer, not a doctor, but you know, she has time to read. So yeah. like, okay, sure. All right. So any parting thoughts on your side then? I have one parting side. I don't remember what I've seen this, but I know in season three, we're getting a new roguish character. We are getting uh, named Cleve. So I guess Ohio is still a thing in the 31st century, as well as the Borg. The Borg are strongly rumored to be coming into. Really? The, this, yep. Ooh. So, and I know Michael Shabon is going to be writing at least one episode for Star Trek Discovery and that Jonathan Franks has say, signed on to direct a whole bunch. So, I'm excited to see where they go because like finally we get to go into the future of Trek and yes, it's so far into the future that we 
won't really run into any of our favorite characters from other installments of the show, but that's why we have Picard coming next. So uh, finally, it feels like CBS is is really living up, and Paramount are really living up to owning the property that is Star Trek. And I'm, I for one welcome our uh, Discovery overlords in the Trek universe. Yeah, I am very much looking forward to the third season. So that is going to wrap it up for our second part. Thank you very much for joining us. You can find the show notes at Popcorn Ronin. And uh, let us know what you thought in the comments. What were some of your favorite episodes? What did you like? If you had a problem with some of it also, let us know. It, it, it was a show that, I shouldn't say it in past tense, but those two seasons, they were not without fault. However, you have to look at it as a whole. You have to appreciate still the 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 strength of what they did right. And when you when you look back at each of the prior series, again, a lot of people will look at them with rose-colored glasses and won't remember all of the, the crap that was in each of those, even your own favorite series. They weren't all perfect. They all had slip-ups. But you have to look at it as a whole. What did it accomplish? What did it set out to do? And do you feel it got there? And so far, while there have been some slip-ups with these first two seasons, it has still been strong enough that if it's not my favorite Trek, it's damn near. Like, it is... I just feel so strongly about it, about the characters, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the characters feel alive because they've been given such a rich history. And now over the course of two seasons, they've been given enough uh, history that we've been a part of that we're rooting for them. So that's where I'm at. So thank you very much for joining us. Marty, thanks for coming out for this. This was a ton of fun. Anytime. All right, and that's it. We'll talk to you guys later.